Hi, and welcome to episode five of ContraCast. My name is Kat Boyd, and I'm joined with my co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? I'm really tired, <laughs> so I'm probably going to sound like a total moron um, today, but... Uh, I will do my best. We've decided that this is some kind of Brexit fatigue. Yeah, I don't. I, for a long time, I thought Brexit would be really good fun. Mm. Now I just feel very, very tired all the time. Like yeah. every time I'm looking at the news, every time I'm looking at Twitter, I just feel drained. I have Brexit drain. Through this entire, see that through the Labour Party conference. Oh, it's oh, pain, man. <laughs> I, everything feels like such a slog, man. Like, see all that stuff with Tom Watson. Oh, oh, I feel like I've had every argument 50 times. Yeah, yeah. See, like, I'm running, like, the Brexit stuff, Andrew Fisher's resignation, the motions of Labour Commerce with the Green New Deal, like, all of those scenarios in my head and, like, what I would do. So I feel like I'm watching five different box set series all yeah. at once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, simultaneously playing out these... Hi, but Corbyn's at the middle of all this. It must be so grueling. What's <sighs> going on inside his head? He just wants to be on his allotment making jam. I know. And I feel like I want to release him back into the wild. You know what I mean? Do you uh, mean like he could just spend his time going round church fets? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like Somerset, places like that, like yeah. sort of nice, the village fair, taking his homemade jam along, selling it. Like that's know. the life he wants. He doesn't want to be, I mean, this football for. In the middle of all these interest. just mad factions. And not even just the ones in the right as well. Do you know what I mean? Getting punted this way by Tom Watson, that way by Paul Mason. And he's in the middle of it trying to toe some kind of line. Did you see that Tom Watson video? That thing where they had like a welcoming party in Brighton Station Farm? That was honestly, like that's when like my fatigue really peaked. Yeah. That was like fake clapping. Like all these people like, woo. Tom Watson. Yeah, yeah, but it was like 10 staffers. It was 10 staffers and then he tried to talk to a member of the public who... <laughs> Ran away. <laughs> yeah, very quickly, like, wheeled himself away. Yeah. Uh, all these figures, though, are having uh, a better time than Justin Trudeau. I, I mean, that was a real, like, shining moment. Yeah. Um, last, like, week in <clears throat> politics. So uh, I have actually been following it very closely because... Justin Trudeau really annoys me. He's everyone's... I mean, he is, like, the poster boy for liberalism. And everyone, I think, was really sucked in by him at first because he's... He is handsome, right? Mm. I mean, people found him attractive and he was always going on about how he was a public school teacher even though he taught at private schools and stuff. And he was really trying to sell this idea of him as a progressive... Yeah, it's a strange undead idea. And of course, we're one of the few countries left in the world where it still plays, where it still runs. This idea that it's the pure centrist liberal politician. Mm. I mean, it's basically only Sturgeon, Justin Trudeau and Macron. Might be a couple of other examples here or there of people who actually have some kind of power and keep getting elected and stuff like that. So I find it fascinating because they're like the last holdouts yeah. of that idea. But I don't think Nicola Sturgeon's ever done blackface. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll put in a request to her office, to a press office, but I doubt, yeah. Get, uh, what's his name, James McInerney on the phone, get an FOI. <laughs> A wee FOI on the go. It's <laughs> yeah. never been blackface. Um, yeah. I don't think you'll find it. No. Um, though it's not the thing I would have guessed about Justin Trudeau either. But I now find him a much more interesting character because oh, yeah. he's been going around with this stuff in the back of his mind. 
for years and I always find mm. that fascinating do you know yeah, what I mean yeah. like I, I really like the idea of him like dragging it around like a ball and chain so when other politicians are getting trapped mm. with their own blackface pictures emerging <laughs> from the past he must be like shit there are so many of them he doesn't even know yeah. that was my favourite bit where he was like I can't really say whether more pictures will come in <laughs> <laughs> and some of them were pictures some of them were videos Right. Yeah. There was a, there's a video of him uh, as far back as his teens, but it was going on for decades. Is that the one? What's the one where he dressed up in blackface and sang Dale? Oh, <laughs> I didn't even see <laughs> Do you know that. that? Do no. you know the song I'm talking about? Yeah, th- yeah. Dale, Dale. <laughs> oh my God, man. I mean, it's so bad. <laughs> I, what I also find incredible is it should be said um, for a politician for whom, whom Paul Ratings is absolutely everything. Uh, he has fallen from uh, a neutral polling position, and that's a strong polling position. I mean, I'm talking about in terms of uh, yeah, if you've personal... Been a, if you've been in power as well. Yeah, in this day and age, personal approving ratings of zero uh, are, are pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> he went, in a week, he went from zero to minus 45. It's spectacular, isn't it's it? It's unbelievable. And that's what happens if, if your whole... If your whole politics is built on the image of you as a squeaky clean guy, once you're obviously not squeaky clean and totally dishonest, it just totally collapses. His PR people responded to this with two things. One was a speech where he admonished Canada as an abstract entity for its continued racism, Mm. right? So he said, yeah, we've all got a lot to work on, right? We've still got, got to make all these advances. And the other thing he did was to change his Twitter profile pic to a picture of him smiling at a black guy. (laughs) (laughs) Who advised him to do that? This is the thing that fascinates me, because he must have more comms people and spinners and PR people. Of course he does, because he is, like... I think he is the essence of neoliberal politician. Mm. Like, that is... He is almost, like, out of the box. Someone who prides and places lots of emphasis on style rather than political substance or like big ideology do you you remember there was that book I remember it was Chantal Mouffe or not who she wrote a book called Governing the Void was that someone else I always liked that as an expression for neoliberal politics yeah I've always liked how we are factually incorrect on the podcast quite often (laughs) well prepared (laughs) but see that thing about like governing the void Mm. um like that again that's diminishing you know what I mean? The, mm-hmm. Like, if you look at British politics today, and I think this has gone largely unnoticed on the left, where people still think that the purpose of socialists is to respond to a political system where everyone agrees with everything. Actually, every vote in Britain is now a vote cast with consequence. Yeah. So it's not like the early 2000s, where people were, were voting went way down, and people were just like, well, it's... New Labour who are copying Thatcher, copying Thatcher, or it's the Tories who are copying New Labour, copying mm. Thatcher. Yeah, you know what I mean. The the, the political situa- situation has largely moved on. But here's my thing about like Trudeau, and by the way, like as soon as like see that thing about his PR team must be huge. I used to always have this image in my mind of you know those that terracotta army, <laughs> and that Chinese emperor's like tomb, right? I imagined after he'd reigned for about four times, they'd bury him in a huge tomb with all these like terracotta guys with blackberries and stuff like that. <laughs> but but here's the thing, that imploded. And I think it's always going to implode. Mm. 
right? Macron has effect- effectively imploded. I mean, he hung on yeah. through the yellow vests, has so far. Um, but, but he's so damaged yeah. by that. I mean, I think, see, on the Trudeau stuff, I also really liked in his sort of response to the scandal... I mean, I think it does really show that underneath all of these liberals, no matter like how well presented they are in terms of their politics, scratch away the surface and you'll find a racist. Yeah, and, like, and like a really privileged rich kid who yeah. doesn't care yeah. about sort of, yeah, totally. morality or um, I <laughs> did really enjoy, though, when he was basically like, oh, yeah, I'm just really enthusiastic about costume. <laughs> He's a thespian. He, or a pervert. <laughs> Mark Ronson's also had a good week. Uh, yeah, that's the other thing I've really enjoyed this week is Mark Ronson coming out as a sapiosexual, mm. um, which is someone who isn't attracted to people's gender, yeah. but is attracted to their intelligence first. Mm-hmm. And, and, and is, is the version of this not usually, not just they're not attracted to gender, but they're not attracted to anything besides intelligence? Would yeah. that not make sense? Yeah, I think, I think that is a... I mean, again, just deeply ill-informed comments on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think it's basically he's saying that he's attracted to intelligence okay. beyond all else. Right, so let's say a 90-year-old man who weighs, weighs £400, right, <laughs> <laughs> dressed uh, as a clown, literally, um, and smelling like sewage, right? Raw sewage, yeah. Raw sewage, he he approaches Mark Ronson and Mark Ron uh, but, but and says to him and you know quotes Shakespeare back to back and shows him new chess moves and stuff and Mark Ronson's like that. Shall we uh, continue this back in my room? <laughs> <laughs> Is that how that works? Uh, I think that's what he said. That's how he's saying it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's saying it works like that. Mm, maybe that's quite an extreme example, mm-hmm. um, but. I'm sure there's some truth to it. Like, I'm not denying that he is attracted to intelligence, but I think the idea that above all else, that just doesn't seem, like, uh, truthful. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it seems like one of those things people say in order to make themselves sound intelligent. Oh, like, of course, yeah. I mean, I have honestly spun that line, like, oh, I'm attracted to intelligent people. <laughs> you know, because implicit is... Um, they need to be able to hold a conversation with me. Yeah, right? like that's, that's I'm not shallow. Yeah, that's just, that's what's implied. But really, underneath, like we all know that the do you know what I mean? This Mensa that you've described, uh, age ninety, four hundred pounds, dressed like a clown, smelling of sewage, <laughs> is probably not gonna be the number one choice. Interestingly, linking together these two apparently unrelated stories, mm. the person who started this ball rolling was a minister in Macron's government. What? Yeah. So it was a. It, it, she was the one who popularised it, right? And she she said that she said I'm only interested in intelligence. Don't care about anything else. Um, so I mean, it is literally an idea which has emerged from like the most elitist. Yeah, I mean, I can see it having like a really dangerous biopolitical edge because mm. you can get these bots now, like chatbots that are super smart. Do you know what I mean? Like genuine artificial intelligence. So if that's all you need, then mm-hmm. all you really need is a little app to have intelligent conversations with. See, I find this is a, something I find fascinating in general at the moment, which is public discussion around intelligence, right? Mm. And it goes much further than that to all this stuff about facts, stuff about experts, yeah. stuff about science, mm. right? Do you know, I, I, ages ago I wrote an article about 
people in Scotland who agreed with Jordan Peterson, right? And I was talking specifically to sort of young men, I suppose, from a similar, largely from like a similar social class background to me, which is kind of like lower middle class, gone precarious, Mm. pointless dead end, sort of like the bits of the middle class that are falling off, right? And (laughs) and the... uh, they, I, I get a really recurrent theme when I'm talking mm. to guys like that. I've kept doing it because I find it so interesting. The thing I keep, I keep getting told is democracy's bad. Like democracy's like uh, politics. They'll say they won't see they won't see democracy. Politics is a waste of time. They're all liars. Uh, and and more important than that, they're stupid and they're not experts and they don't understand what's going on in the world. Mm. And they, and what a lot of these guys say to me is. Why can't we just have scientists in charge? Which is a twisted rollover from like the militant atheist thing. But who else? Do you know who else agrees with that? That famous again, well researched. That famous uh, astronomer guy, Patrick Moore. No, <laughs> <laughs> not the one who's like a rock star. Oh, what's his f- D Ream? He was in D Ream. D Ream. Yeah. Um, Brian Cox. Brian Cox. Yeah, yeah. he was in theory. Oh yeah, that like it was like an, an 80s pop group or the something. The ones that did things can only get better. Was he? Yeah. I'm finding stuff out today. Fuck. Anyway, yeah, him. He tweeted that. He yeah. tweeted like something even even more sinister than that. He said scientists should dis- d- decide on all matters relating to science, right, which is basically everything. And when it comes to the economy, business people should decide everything. What's fascinating about that to me is, like, do you know in the 1920s, after the shock of the First World War, this was a really popular idea on the far right. And lots of circles of intellectuals who mainly went on to be, like, fascists, you know, like the futurists and stuff yeah. like that. But in France as well, so the, the the wartime regime in France after Hitler occupied the country, they a lot of them met each other in circles of intellectuals who had this idea that basically all of the functions of democratic and civic life should be replaced by experts. And that's how you would diffuse class warfare. That's how you would diffuse the disorder that European society was in in the aftermath of the uh, of the First World War. But I find that idea has become quite popular, particularly among like the middle class, basically. Well, yeah, it's it's not that big a leap to think about the approach that the European Union has to politics. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like removing the democratically elected leader of a European nation like Italy and imposing a technocrat. I mean, what is a technocrat if not someone mm-hmm. who can, like, apply a... Like, if you see economics as a science and politics as a science, apply these things to a situation under a, polit- a political brief. Yeah. Or, do you know what I mean? Or some kind of, like, delineated project that they have to they have to administer. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That's how the European Union itself functions, is that it's incredibly technocratic. And I don't see that as being, like, a million miles away from, why don't we have the scientists in charge of... Absolutely not. I think, I think we live in a time like the 20s where, like, authoritarianism of a certain understated type is very much like in vogue. Mm-hmm. I think people want technocrats specifically to remove the like dilemmas and the chaos, the disorder that's now afflicting European politics. Like the the stuff that was that, that's been going on in the courts. Like there's a stratum of British society who love 
that stuff. They they want to turn this lady Hale into some kind of like not not you know some sort of hero, but not but you know they love this stuff about. But she's got no politics. She's got no dog in the fight. She's a hero because she's totally because neutral. she stands above it. Because she stands above it. Like that's I think that it's it's that whole thing. So it's like the stuff around the the BBC or um, yeah, Lady Hale or the Supreme Court or the European Union. These things that stand above politics yeah and that i mean as if like this politics is something it's stupid and because we have seen this like rise in populism like whatever that whether that looks like boris johnson or jeremy corbyn like there is a certain grouping like the kind of the upper middle class and the elites who are very disdainful of it i mean you can see it really clearly with the result over the eu referendum do you know what i mean like people i see it on twitter still the idea that people who voted leave are stupid and allowed themselves to be misled and mm-hmm. or lied to do you know what i mean like all this stuff like politics is is, is just stupid did you see this monologue by uh, what's his name the the radio and tv presenter about the queen no where he he, he literally Who says is it? Uh, Jeremy Vine. <clears throat> Jeremy Vine has this incredible monologue. He's on like a panel, daytime panel mm-hmm. discussion show, and he he's sat in front of the in front of the camera, almost like there's a military coup going on, right? And he addresses the Queen directly, and he goes, he starts by going, "Your Majesty," and it's in this totally earnest way, and he just says, "You need to intervene." And like rescue us from this situation, he says your reign is ending in chaos and all this kind of stuff. Intervene and end it. You be the decider, right? And he gets a round of applause from the other panelists, from the audience, and stuff like that. But yeah, but this is this is the nub of like authoritarian thought, right? It's horror at at the reality of conflict. Mm. You know what I mean? In a, in a society where conflict has become unavoidable, people start saying, "Can there not be?" A force, yeah, that rises above all of the wider divisions. The most horrifying thing for liberals to ever find out is that all the institutions that they think are above the free are just as much a part of it as anyone else. Part of it, like that's what's happening. Is you know we've talked about this before on the pod. Like this is everything that's happening with the prorogative parliament, um, with Brexit, um, all of that, all of the the legal challenges. This is a faction fight in the ruling class. This is a fact. There is there is nothing there for the ninety nine percent of people. Yeah, there has to be a general election. Mm-hmm. Right. Also, like for the majority of ordinary citizens, like Britain is a basket case. Yeah, Do you know what I mean, like there needs to be a wind and blow. Yeah. to the British state. Yeah, right? and that's not going to come through electing Jeremy Corbyn alone. That has to be through another independence referendum. And a crisis like this. It always divides people who see themselves as like left wing or dissidents or whatever between the people who see the way forward is, as you say, wounding the system, like attacking the system, and people who see the way forward as defending it. Because they're actually invested in this idea that there can be institutions beyond conflict. I mean, I I think that there are some people who are peeling away from that idea now because this conflict that we're in, this is eternal. This is this mm. is not going away. Like I sometimes I hear and speak to people when they're like, oh, you know, I can't wait till this Brexit stuff is done. It's almost similar to like some of the Scottish Labour line about like the independence referendum is over. 
and trying to say to people it is not over and it will never be over yeah. this is the eternal crisis of the British state there's never going to be a day yeah. where this isn't part of the political debate now it is here like, that Pandora's box is open it was a former Labour MP who said after the referendum all that will be left is to bayonet the dead Oh, that was is a it, classic. Is it Ian Davidson? Yeah. Um, Have you seen Chernobyl? I've still not seen it. There's this bit, so basically after there's the explosion in Chernobyl, the core is exposed and all this radioactive waste is like sort of burning out the top and there's smoke billowing everywhere and it's poisoning the atmosphere and everyone is breathing it in. Mm-hmm. I always think of <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, that's what's happened is, like, these things have been ripped apart. Like, the core is exposed and we are all breathing it in now. It is part of politics. Yeah. Like, I think the duty of the left is to seize these moments back for progressive politics. Yeah. But I don't know how we do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, I don't have any answers right now. Like, I just feel... It's just that there are obvious next steps. Obvious next steps. General election, it was a mistake not to do it before. Yeah. It was a mistake. Like I don't, I don't know how the legal system works. Again, ding ding on the ill-informed podcast comments. But if you imagine that a general election had been called or is underway, and this ruling happens, no, I know, I know that Boris Johnson has acted unlawfully in Peru Parliament, unlawfully, like his campaign falls apart. Do you know what I mean? So I just, I think that it was a mistake not to do it before. Um, I think we should do it now. Um, and I also think there needs to be a second independence referendum. And I don't think that those things are in contradiction with each other. No, uh, I, I agree with that. Um, but there, there, there is, of course, a huge tendency on parts of the, well, the forces that are notionally oppositional to, to Boris Johnson to leave him in charge of the crisis, sometimes described as sort of clever or tactics or something like that. Um, but it's really, re- really a fear of accelerating the crisis. Mm. And it's worth always saying in, in times like this, Politics of the Brexit Party and the politics of the Liberal Democrats are almost identical. Yes. On all extreme major, positions. Yeah. On, on, on all matters of substance, they agree. The Liberal Democrats say that free markets are best served by staying in the EU. The Brexit Party says that free markets is best served by uh, leaving the EU. In different ways, they're both wrong, <laughs> because organising society on that basis will always lead to destructive and contradictory outcomes um, but that should never be forgotten mm. like, the, the, these are two two wings of politics with very similar ideas that are organising very similar social forces to a, to a considerable degree but we also um, we were talking earlier in the week about the wider kind of cultural and political zeitgeist and the appeal to authoritarianism as like a consequence of like the precarity mm. that young people now now live in. I saw you tweeted the thing about um, some American conservative type went to Cuba and went to like a supermarket uh, and went to these kind of stacked out shelves all with like, you know, like one type of chopped tomatoes, one type of like bog roll or whatever. It looks looks amazing. That looks amazing. I want, like, I think for me, I used to be very much like into like libertarian communism do you know what I mean I didn't like the idea of a big state Hmm. but having been involved in like horizontalist organisations in the left that embody that type of like anarcho-syndicalist communist 
like politics, it doesn't work, right? Mm. As my politics have developed and I thought about like the impact on real life, on human emotions, the human capabilities for education, travel, learning, love, sex, like all of these things that we can do in our free time. Like I actually now just want a state <laughs> to pick the best chopped tomatoes <laughs> get them mass produced big planned economy stick them on the shelves so I don't have to worry about all the different brands of chopped tomatoes yeah and by the way I was shocked that that tweet got liked quite a lot of times yeah I mean because I was basically describing like big state communism with a planned economy which you know we've actually got the technology to do that now yeah. We've got the technology for planned economies. I mean, think about, like, what you can do on your phone. Do you know what I mean? Like, Amazon, Uber, like, all of these technologies should be seized by the state and used for the people. Yeah. I mean, uh, people forget that in the USSR, they did actually try and use com- computer systems mm. to, to help organise the economy. Those computer systems were about 1% as powerful as your iPhone. Yeah. I mean, it, the technology has moved on enormously. Yeah, it's, it's moved on hugely. And I think that because we do have the capabilities for our planned economy, then we should actually start talking about it more. Like mm-hmm. The markets are deeply, deeply inefficient. That's what pisses me off so much about the Liberal Democrats. Yeah. Talking about, like, you know, the markets will efficiently allocate resources, blah, blah, blah. That's just, I mean... For every time someone says, show me where communism has been successful, all I need to do is pull back the curtains and get them to look out the bloody window. Yeah. The markets do not self-regulate. Yeah. Like Even on a basic social democratic basis within the British state, what you have is a Labour government getting elected that takes a few steps forward. Under Jeremy Corbyn, it might take 10 steps forward, but then you end up with the Tories in power mm. and it goes 20 steps back the way. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And you're trapped in this eternal swing back and forth, back and forth. So what I would <laughs> see as long-term next steps is that I would want to see a state that is actually run by working-class people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I am talking about the dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah. But you need to have that. Like, I still have that sort of instinct for, um, like, revolutionary politics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because if that had been put out, you know, five or six years ago even, more people would have defended the idea that consumer choice is the acme of democracy, right? I think people are genuinely kind of feel swamped demoralised, degraded by the extent of meaningless choice in society. It's not just a meaningless choice between different products that are almost the same. It's not just that. I think it's like the constant, like everything, everywhere we go, everything that we do, every time we are online, we are bombarded with things that we can buy. Yeah. You know, and I fall into that trap. Like, if I'm feeling really depressed and moping about, I'll be like, no, just go buy like a nice coffee or something, cheer me up. Yeah. Like a real basic bitch. Yeah. But <laughs> it's true. But like, this idea that you can consume in order to like feel better or to ameliorate like some of the worst like symptoms that you feel that day of turbo capitalism that you can buy your way out of that, you absolutely can't. And I think that people are very wise to that now. Mm-hmm. Like. The, there actually needs to be some system change because I don't want to think about consuming all the time. Like, we're encouraged to consume constantly. And then people are like, 
you know oh why is the planet such a mess yeah I, I, this is the other thing like um, with all the discussion that's going on about uh, climate change and stuff yeah. the people think that it's compatible to have two dozen types of chopped tomatoes and save the planet because I can like, assure you that it's not the obsolescence of white goods for example do you know what I mean like mm-hmm. buy a washing machine dead within five years like but it's going to the washing machine graveyard yeah. Which isn't down the road, it's in China. Yeah. That's what they do, they just stick it on boats and then they sail it over to China and then the Chinese bury it or burn it. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're advocating is a return to authoritarianism. That's what I'm at. Am I advocating that? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean, of, of sorts. It reminded me of um, uh, a thing that uh, Slavoj Žižek uh, once said. He, he was talking about one of these horizontalist experiments in Greece mm-hmm. during the movement there. And uh, he said that he was invited into this sort of hippie park uh, where everything was being organised by the people in there. And he just said, I don't want to organise everything. I want to be able to do things that are meaningful in my life. What he was basically saying was that there'll probably never be a, a democracy beyond the idea of some kind of representative democracy, mm. where parts of society are apportioned tasks that they have to yeah. be engaged in. And in the hope that other people can specialise and other people can do things that are important to them and stuff like that. Like, I think that... <clears throat> I mean, I really, just to say, like, I really am on board with Zizek, mm-hmm. um, especially, like, in that, that concept that he outlines of people coming together to decide how everything is run. And I remember reading studies of this before when I was at uni and um, reading about um, the anarchist movements. Mm. and like the allocation of tasks and communes and squats and stuff like that I've always been a big sort of advocate of the Porto Alegre participatory budget and stuff like that but like the, but the more I think about it and the more I read about it the more I get this sense of like I do not want to spend my time talking about who cleans the bins out mm. like I do you know what I mean I don't want to be part of a society where I am part of the decision making process Micromanager I, yeah, yeah exactly see I always make this assumption that you know people feel disconnected from decisions that are made about their lives true but the solution to that isn't to get everyone to make all the decisions together <laughs> like if that's I mean everyone just becomes a bureaucrat then right yeah yeah, yeah. I don't want to do that. I want to, like, live a meaningful life and do meaningful things for myself and for others and be of service and all that sort of stuff. I don't want to be thinking about, like, little tasks in society and who's going to do these little tasks and having to be part of the decision-making process. I want someone to make the decision for me. And it um, it sounds like an abstract debate about, like, final societal forms, but it actually informs the different ways people view radical politics. Like, I I think that hierarchies naturally occur, by which I don't mean that the hierarchies that we have in society right now are just or correct. But the, 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 the moral claim made by socialists is not that everyone is as smart as everyone else or everyone is as good at uh, painting a portrait, or everyone's as good as pro- at programming a computer or doing the 100-metre sprint. That's not, that's not the claim of, of, of socialists, that people are equal in the sense that they are the same. We're making an abstract moral judgment that people are this, are equal even though they're different. Yeah. Right? I think that that's, that's really important. Yeah. That's a really um, important distinction. And that, that frees you from a sort of dogmatic moralism that haunts 
large parts of the left. Yeah, that like that idea of being in a. So I am talking about being in a left wing organization where uh, everything is set up so that everyone's voice is equal. But what that becomes is just this kind of like tyranny or structurelessness mm-hmm. where no one is responsible <laughs> for any decision, but everyone must collectively take the decision. And it just really, it doesn't work. Like mm-hmm. that would be my appeal to anyone who is involved in those things. It's like that type of set up and structure within any organisation that I've been in, like a political organisation, it doesn't really work mm-hmm. properly. And, and, and of course, what you famously end up with in those circumstances is that the people who are more confident, more intelligent, more uh, maybe just more ambitious, more venal, yeah. I- inevitably carve out positions of power for themselves. And in any time, by the way, that I was ever in situations like that, like places where this was a real dogma, like the student movement back in the day, the, the person who was in charge would always be the one most vociferously telling everyone that no one was in charge and that it was really important that no one ever be in charge. Yeah. That person would then also make all the decisions and organise yeah. everything. Yeah, that person undoubtedly would be um, obsessed with their own status within the group as well. Yeah. Always, like, I've seen that happen a million times. Oh, I wanted to talk about, like, the re-emergence of Stalin as, like, a sort oh, yeah. of as meme format. Um, I see this on the internet all the time. Lots of Stalin memes being shared, like this kind of jokey uh, socialist realism stuff. Do you remember like sexy young Stalin? Sexy young Stalin was very sexy. Yeah, yeah. I would really encourage all our listeners to check out uh, young Stalin because he was hot. <laughs> Unless you're a sapiosexual. But he was also a smart man. Yeah, well, smart smart enough to outmaneuver, you know, and kill everyone in the league. Yeah, but I think on. like... Stalin's strategy for the Second World War or the Great War was just um, keep feeding people to the front line. <laughs> <laughs> it's not always smart you need, you know, sometimes it's... Uh, sometimes it's brute force. Yeah. But <laughs> there has been this sort of like re-emergence as like, or emergence I guess is like Stalin as a sort of like cultural meme. Mm. Um, and I see him like alongside Trump and Erdogan, like the kind of culture around them that talking about, like the, the politics of it. But I think it is young people mostly millennials and younger sort of clambering for some type of father figure Mm -hmm. that's what I see is like people want a leader that they can follow people want to be in an organisation where there's a line Mm -hmm. like that's what I want right I feel like often like we have to come up with the lines but I just I would love to be in like a huge like hard line Mm -hmm. militant communist organisation where we would thrash out the debate on the central committee then the directive would be issued and you just go out and you just argue the directive it's always been such a, like an attractive idea to me that you can have such a mass organisation as that where a key t- decision may be taken or a key argument may be made and you may disagree with it but you just have to argue for it anyway yeah do you know what that does it destroys the ego yeah and that's that like that's where we've gotten to the thing like now politics has become so intertwined with our own narcissism mm-hmm. about like who we are and our own unique individual identities and what we think is right and wrong rather than being part of a genuine collective mm-hmm. where you you give up the ego and you systematically try to chip away at that ego for 
a greater good for like a higher purpose or a common unity Mm -hmm. so you give up what you David Jameson individually think and you go and you argue the line mm -hmm. as part of a bigger organisation like that's what I want to do yeah I mean, if there's anyone listening to this that wants to recruit me to their weird <laughs> communist sect <laughs> cult, I was going to go to, going to go for. Yeah, I'm up for. I'm ripe for joining a cult. I would say. Yeah. You've already had been in one, though, eh? <laughs> exactly. But see, the thing is, David right? was a former member of the Socialist Workers Party. Yeah. Can I say that? Yeah. Like... No, absolutely. The thing is, like the one of the things that I'm glad of having been in that experience for was precisely a version of that relationship yeah. where you frequently disagree with the arguments you're being told to make but you do it anyway now when done on a small scale uh, like that it's pretty defective I mean that's not what we're, what we're talking about but I am at least glad that I uh, saw a situation where yeah you have to make arguments in public that you don't agree with it would be very difficult I suspect for people coming into the left now to understand that. Yeah. I, I think that the highest, I think it's almost seen as a point of principle that you always say what you really believe in your heart of hearts, which is a very narcissistic yeah, impulse. Yeah, we are, and this is the thing is like that type of like narcissism is taught from an early age. Like mm -hmm. we are encouraged to, you know, share our hopes and dreams and desires. Like yeah. none of this Don't stuff hold back. Like, Don't hold back. No, do hold back. Like, you do you. <laughs> yeah, you do be, you. Be your best self. Yeah. Like all that the girl boss bullshit. Like that's like that's neoliberalism yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's pure neoliberalism distilled and we have swallowed that down I find some of that stuff about telling people to be themselves slightly sinister because that's not how people in charge behave they don't they don't share themselves like I watched for some reason right I watched David Cameron's uh, thing on the BBC that documentary right he didn't he didn't tell, give us one bit of emotional or intellectual honesty in like a two hour documentary mm. because people in power don't do that right that to me that stuff is creepy because it's buttering people up to behave like children and to keep spilling their guts and saying exactly what they think about every single situation in a way that destroys any capacity for like collective or strategic yeah. action or or, uh, or anything like that but see this thing as well about people hunting out sort of patriarchal figures to turn them into these sort of daddy figures right you can see a lot of that stuff with like um john mcdonald right i find yeah. this really fascinating the meme of john mcdonald is some kind of ira hard man yeah. will not Drinking die like a, a pint of better better yeah and and and, and fixing you with a steely gaze yeah. you know perhaps considering having your kneecapped or something like that you know, throughout the crisis, right, and who knows what kind of pressure's landing on his head, right? So I'm not, I'm not just saying like having a go, but Corbyn has actually proven himself to be pretty, to be reasonably hard. I don't agree with everything mm -hmm. that he's done in the crisis, but I mean, he's still. He has held on through <laughs> unbelievable pressure. Yeah. He's still, he's still reasonably sane. At least he seems to be. John McDonnell has, by comparison, he's been like a fart in a blizzard. Like he has, he has been all yeah. over the place, right? The idea that he's some sort of man of steel should have died off by now, but people want it. Yeah. They want a hard like man Every time pressure has been applied from the right, McDonald has slid. Yeah. He has slid on that. Yeah. Uh, and you can you can sit and watch it happening in TV studios. He starts off in a TV, in like a 20 minute interview, he starts off more left wing than he ends, hmm. right? So the idea that he's this you know, 
hard-jawed, hard-nosed thug who's desperate to liquidate the ruling class. It's obviously by this point not true. But that is love the, it. Yeah, that is the sort of... That's his form on the internet. Mm-hmm. I see that all the time. And people are sat, like people are searching around for these archetypes, <sighs> partly because of like the death of political tradition on the left, partly because the kind of traditions we're talking about, where people accept that socialism might be a pragmatic rather than a utopian form of government. People who accept that there may be forms of collective organisational life that will limit their own individual liberty. Those traditions have died away and people are kind of hunting for them in the rubble. Yeah, see, I I think of that Sartre quote that man is condemned to freedom. Mm. Like, do you know what I mean? I, I am willing to sacrifice a degree of my quote-unquote liberty to live within a set of rules mm-hmm. that are collectively agreed so that I can be free mm-hmm. to do you know what I mean to live a meaningful life and to experience what it means to be human yeah like that's a big part of my understanding of Marxism yeah uh, but it is remarkable how much since well you could say since 68 but it's probably tr- fairer to say because people forget that in the 68 kind of student movement and stuff all those people did join bizarre Maoist cults and stuff like that, right? Since neoliberalism, a real job of work has been done on convincing people that the ultimate form of rebellion and the ultimate form of democratic life is individualism and narcissism and having 12 different brands of chopped tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) To bring us back to tweet. Um... Yeah, God, that conversation with that tweet really like drifted off into a no man's land of <laughs> weird stuff about Stalin and um, but yet that um, the '68 generation like that is that is the birth of neoliberalism. That is the birth of this ideology. And there's a few people who have managed to get out of that and still remain steadfast in their politics. Mm-hmm. And people like Corbyn and Daddy Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to sound like a like a like a fucking sour dick about this kind of stuff, but look at someone like but. Tara, but look at someone like Tara Kelly. I think like Tara Kelly is one of the greatest living public intellectuals that yeah. we have, and I don't agree with Tara Kelly on everything, no. but like being around him and in conversation with him is like you you know that you're speaking to someone who really like considers matters views them through an intellectual and theoretical framework he's not just going around being like well I think this today or I think that today and like contradicting himself all over Twitter Paul Mason (laughs) (laughs) I know but that is like that is the modern day equivalent I mean I mean it's that degree of kind of internal liquidation of the left has reached a stage where you can be seen as at once a truly kind of like radical socialist and someone who changes their views wildly 20 times a day, hopping from the far left of the spectrum to, well, to be honest, the hard right. I mean, by the time you're going around talking about HM the Queen... Right, and saying that the Tory party has offended the Queen. Organising a fan club for Lady Hale. Yeah. Um, like the 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 type of like public intellectual that is created by decades of neoliberalism. Mm. Someone for whom um it is like politics is like a consumer choice. Yeah. Where you can dress in kind of radical robes. Uh, and do an ultra-conservative dance, and that's just your choice. Yeah, at least you're dressed in radical robes and not blackface. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, yeah, tweet us any feedback. Please correct our facts. Become a Connor Cast truther um, at Kitty Cat Boyd or at David Jameson 7. David's Jameson underscast 7 or something like that. I can't it's remember. Something like that. I really want to know who the David Jamesons 1 to 6 are. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we're coming. Let us know what you think of today's pod. Um, you can follow Contour on Twitter as well. It's at Contour Scott. Oh, we have a website. It's contour.co.uk. Mm. And when you go there, there's going to be a section set up for Contourcast specifically um, that will give some show notes about each episode and um, pictures. Say goodbye. Goodbye. Your Majesty, in decades, centuries to come, we will be known as the Elizabethans because of you. You are QE2. We are the second Elizabethans. Your Majesty, your reign is ending in disquiet. Your subjects are split down the middle. Your country hung, drawn and quartered. They say protocol means you can't speak. Screw protocol. They say protocol means you must stay out of it. Well, get your courtiers in a room and tell them to shove their protocol up their royal garters. You would shout fire if you saw one in a theater. Shout now, ma'am. We need you to say something. The country is 52-48 on Brexit, but where are you? Everyone's arguing and you don't speak. Your Majesty, please tell us what to do. Please don't wait another day. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street. There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know. The air is unfit to breathe. Our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore!